The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Ye of little faith. That's what people told me after I put out that podcast last week where I essentially gave up hope. For those who can't get into housing on their own steam through their parents or because they marry into wealth, the reaction was, for me, quite shocking. Uh, I thought everyone knew this. But the way that people got back to me and said, goodness me, you've just said what I've been thinking for a long time and it's profoundly depressing. And Bernard, why are you so depressing? And surely you haven't given up hope. And uh, then a whole bunch of people came back and said, "Um, it's not fair. You can't just give up hope. You have to come up with some constructive ideas. And they're they're right about that. Uh, My initial response was to say, well, I've been coming up with constructive ideas for 20 years and it didn't work. And so did a whole bunch of other people. They had constructive ideas too, but they couldn't get it past the electorate or some treasury boffin came up and said, no, that'll wreck our debt track. So my initial response was to say, yeah, well, that was the whole point to say, I've thought of all these things and none of them are working, so I'm giving up. But looking at the depth of the response and the desperation, actually, uh, that people showed when they got back to me. And also a bunch of people said, oh, Bernard, have you thought about that? And there are quite a few ideas that have been sort of parked off the side of the debate, in part because politicians have suggested they wouldn't be interested. And there's an awful lot of um, policy prescribers who try to second guess what is going to be politically successful. And if it doesn't look like it's going to get through now, then you don't suggest it. But there are some other ways. And in my research for this week's episode, in which I talked to Kay Savile-Smith, who is an advisor to the Housing and Urban Development authority and a long-time researcher and policy advisor on this. I talked to her and she actually gave me a little bit of hope because she still uh, thinks that there are ways through. And in fact, she's more hopeful now than she has been for years. And then I spoke to Ronji Tanyelu, who is right at the coalface of our housing crisis in New Zealand. He's a policy analyst for the Salvation Army, a policy advisor who works on housing intensively. The Salvation Army do a great job, actually, of looking at the housing crisis from the point of view of those who are really suffering, people who are um, on benefits, working poor, can't afford the rent, um, often don't uh, have anywhere to live. Um, He was telling me about a person who was living in a tent, and there are some shocking stories out there. You've got to listen to someone who's uh, dealing with that sort of crisis day in, day out, who still has hope and still has ideas. That's what this week's podcast is all about. Some ideas from people who have hope and a few more ideas from me that I haven't really aired for a while and uh, come up with a combination of things that suggest there is still some hope out there and with the right economic and political weather, with some luck, they might actually happen. So here we go. For ye of little faith, and that means me of little faith, here's what I would suggest politicians and voters and 
the housing market's observers actually do to try and solve this problem. This would be what I would do if I was uh, in charge, if you like, and didn't have to worry about being re-elected. And there wasn't anyone at Treasury telling me that I couldn't do that because it, it broke the debt track. So here we go. Firstly, we need a land levy. This is a affordable housing and climate change levy. This is effectively a land tax. I would suggest 0.5% broad-based and low rate. That's the best type of tax, as any tax specialist will tell you, and it certainly works for PAYE and for GST. And it's applied very broadly, hardly any exceptions, and it just hoovers up the cash. The one part of the economy that is not being taxed at all is wealth, particularly unearned wealth. And a land tax is a fantastic way to capture some of that unearned wealth and put it to good use. Because at the moment, about $1.5 trillion worth of value is captured in our housing market, including about $780 billion in the value of land. The most fair, most effective, easy to measure way to raise significant amounts of money to pay for infrastructure, to remove the concerns that councils and government have about debt limits, and actually to redistribute some wealth in a way that makes sense and is fair is to have a land tax. I would call it a an affordable housing and climate change adaptation levy which would generate, if it was half a percent on $780 billion worth of land, about $3.9 billion a year. You may think, gee, that's not much. You can't buy much with $3.9 billion, and that's true. But what you can do with that regular flow of cash is then use it to service debt, particularly when debt is incredibly cheap at the moment. It would mean that you wouldn't be, in effect, um, increasing the debt track for the country uh, in a way that would damage your credit rating. And uh, it may push up interest rates just a tiny bit, but not enough to really derail um, the economy or derail the housing market that much. So $3.9 billion a year. And remember, right now, we are spending upwards of $4 billion a year on uh, housing accommodation supplements and various fees for uh, emergency housing, $4 billion. Now, over time, if you removed those costs and you used the land levy, you would have upwards of 7 to $8 billion a year of revenue, which you could use to service debt. In the same way that when someone is saving money and they think of their rent, let's say it's $500 a week, they understand that with that $500 a week, instead of spending it on rent, they could spend it on interest. And that's what the nation could do. Instead of spending $4 billion a year on accommodation supplements, which aren't solving the problem, you use it to solve the problem. So upwards of $7 billion. With a 2% interest rate, that means you've got $350 billion worth of borrowing that you could use to solve these problems over a period of 20 years. Because ultimately, we're not going to solve our housing affordability crisis without a significant upgrading of our housing stock and a significant amount of new houses. To do that, you need lots of um, public transport, um, redevelopment of uh, sections into significant numbers of medium density houses, and you also need to uh, maintain them. At the moment, councils aren't doing that work and neither are the government. So that's the core of um, my solution. 
is a land tax, a, a, a levy to fund that infrastructure and to get over the issue. That also would immediately reduce the price of land, which um, is one of the reasons our housing is so expensive at the moment. Secondly, uh, you could also um, expand that land levy for undeveloped residential land, land that has been land banked. At the moment, it doesn't cost anyone anything to just sit on that land and do nothing with it. But if you had a land tax of, instead of, say, 0.5%, it was 5%, or maybe even 1%, that would change the incentives for land bankers to really get that land into housing as quickly as possible. The other option is to make sure that councils can capture some of the value uplift from rezoning. This is free money, really, for anyone who's owning land on the fringes of town or a piece of land that was zoned for uh, single housing residential to go up to multiple use residential. Suddenly, that land is worth a lot more. They didn't earn that. They just fell on their heads, and some of it should be claimed back. In the same way that a land levy would help redistribute income in a progressive way that took the money from those who could afford it most and who didn't earn it to those who need it in the form of affordable housing. And then the other option, or the other way to solve this problem, is to essentially change expectations. At the moment, New Zealanders expect house prices to double every seven or eight years, and they've been right, and governments and central banks have been wrong. But just as we solved the inflation problem in the 70s and 80s by actually publicly, legislatively saying we are here to bring inflation down to 2%, that's our job, you could do the same for affordable housing. Telling the country, agreeing in policy, agreeing at an election, that we are going to have affordable housing again. It's going to be five times income, let's say. It's going to cost no more than, let's say, 30% of your disposable income in rent and in interest costs on mortgages. You could do that. And you could explain to people that we're going to achieve this over a certain period of time. And this is what we're going to do to get there. Because that $7 billion would fund up to $350 billion in infrastructure spending. And if you were to say, just as we have with the Carbon Zero Act, that we're going to get to Carbon Zero by 2050 come hell or high water and we've all agreed to do it, you could do the same for housing. In the same way that you have a climate change commission, you could have an affordable housing commission, which has the power to spend that hypothecated, dedicated money from a land levy to spend on infrastructure to achieve not just affordable housing, but Carbon Zero. Now, that would be leapt on from a height <laughs> by anyone who is against taxes, by anyone who has made money out of uh, land price appreciation, and from those who, quite frankly, like the idea of house prices rising because that's how you make money in New Zealand. Fair enough. And that's one of the reasons I haven't really talked about it much because I thought it would be jumped on from a height. But hey, I'm unelectable, so that's good. And people were looking for some hope. There you go. There's some hope on when the facts change I'm Bernard Hickey. This is a podcast on the spin-off network brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank. Well, kia ora, and I'd like to welcome in Kay Savile-Smith from her study in rural Marlborough. Kay, welcome in to When the Facts Change. Oh, thank you very much, Bernard. Great to be here. It's great, because I, I wanted to come to you for some hope, frankly, <laughs> after <laughs> last week where I told the 
our audience that I had given up hope on ever getting to affordable housing for buyers and renters. And they said, Bernard, it can't be that bad. Find someone who's got some hope and new ideas. And I thought, right, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And I came to UK as a someone who's been following the housing market and the debates for a long time. And you're in a position to be able to say with authority, um, we've done that. This works a bit. This, here's some other ideas. You've, you, you're a full-time watcher and advisor on the uh, housing market. So I thought I'd come to you. Kate, t- tell me, give me some hope. What what can we do with, to bring this housing market back to affordability? Well, I think the first thing is, yes, there is hope. And I wouldn't do housing research, as I've done for the last 30-odd years, anymore if I didn't think there was hope. I think we have the opportunity to transform. And I also, for a couple of days a week, work for the Ministry of Housing and Urban Developers, their Chief Science Advisor. And I can tell you absolutely, I would never have taken that job a year ago if I didn't believe that we've got a new sort of institutional landscape. It's not going to solve it, but it, it certainly gives us a better crack at dealing with this housing crisis than we've ever had before. So I think the issue here is that we've got to, in a sense, keep the faith that New Zealand can have decent housing. We have in the past and we can in the future. But it's not straightforward. And some of the things that we often don't think as as being around housing often are. And I think the one thing that I currently think of, or two things that come to mind for me. One is that we're at a tipping point in relation to the housing crisis. There's lots of symptoms that the housing system has failed, whether it's homelessness, unaffordable rents, hugely overheated house prices, you know, the, the, we can go on and on and on about that. The problem that we face in that is once you get to a tipping point, once you've allowed that to happen and bed in, it keeps on through its own energy, if you like. It reproduces itself and it keeps on going. So you can tinker with the system. You certainly can tinker with policy, and I'll come back to that in a minute. And you don't see an immediate improvement. And we've got to give up thinking, this is going to be solved overnight. It's taken us 30 years to get to this point, and it's going to take us a wee while to get out of it. So I think there is hope, but we're going to have to really face up to some really hard stuff. One of the hard things I think we have to face up to is that this is a system problem. It's not just a policy problem. It's actually a system problem. And that comes back to the system that we have and we've had since the 1990s, which is essentially our approach to the housing system has been through the market. And then we've said, well, the market doesn't always work for everyone all of the time. And sometimes the market failure. So we've got to look after a few people. How will we do that? We'll give people an accommodation supplement if they're feeling a bit stressed financially in the housing market. And that's what we've done for the last 30 odd years. So what that means at the moment, we pay out two point, well, budgeted for this year, $2.4 billion dollars for the accommodation supplement, we'll probably spend around $2 billion, $2.1 billion. That's an awful lot of money to be spending every year, in year one, in year two, and so on. And that was sort of predictable. But what we've also done, because of the failure of the housing system, we've also now had to apply lots of other band-aids, whether it's 
funding into emergency houses or so-called transitional houses and so forth. And we know that unless we can get the stock right, we can't get people out of these emergency housing and transitional housing situations. So what do we do about this? And I think that one of the first things that we need to recognise is that actually often we're talking as though it's a housing market, but really it's a property market. It's not a housing market. It's not about people getting homes. It's not about finding places for people. And one of the reasons I have hope is I think for the first time in probably the first 20 years, certainly until about 2010, 2013, there wasn't a real recognition that there was a housing crisis at all. So can't do anything if you don't admit there is one. And then we went through a period, we blamed it on individuals, and, you know, there were pathological beings that were, couldn't act within the housing market, and that's why they failed, so we've done that. And then we've done, well, it's all the planning system, and that stopped people getting land and affordable housing and all of that stuff. And if we just build more houses, the prices will come down and all be okay. So these are the sorts of myths that we have and we've held on to. And gradually, what I see over the last couple of years in particular, is that those are being unpacked. They're starting to dissuade. Not entirely, that's, you know, people hold them dear to themselves, but are starting to be unpacked. And so we're starting to move forward. And so I think system change is going to happen, but we have to decide that we've got some issues which are not just about pouring money into the humanitarian crisis that we have in housing. So there's some system changes required. What parts of the system do you think uh, could be changed or should be changed to try and make some progress? Well, well, I'll, I'll start with the things that people don't think of. I mean, actually, yep. people like you do, actually, Bernard, but many people don't think of. The whole setting around our residential property, who invests what, how we invest in it as an affordable housing stock, you can treat it as the infrastructure for a decent New Zealand. And if you treat it as that, and you say our economic and our social life and our cultural life actually depends on decent housing, governments make investments in those. That's always been true. It's been true in New Zealand for many, many generations. It's only recently that we haven't done that. And in 1988, we were in a situation where we were saying, actually, we're pretty damn good at this. And we were. And it's we've essentially, we turned off the tap in terms of investment in the infrastructure. And we've lived off the fat ever since. So that's one problem. So we actually have to start thinking about how do we invest in the stock for affordable stock, not just any stock, but affordable stock. And one of the things that international research shows is just building a hell of a lot more houses does not bring prices down mm. because it's who owns them and it's the price point they put on the market. So I was very heartened when I hear the Minister of Finance say to the Reserve Bank, 
I want to know about house price sustainability and I want you to do something about that. And of course, I'm less heartened when I hear someone say, oh, well, it must be sustainable because people wouldn't be buying houses. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is even that has been opened up. You have a Minister of Finance who has put out a Section 68 and said, I want to look at this. I'm not just going to ignore it. I'm not allowing the Reserve Bank anymore from the point, insofar as I can, because, of course, it's very independent. Um, but I don't want us just thinking about protecting the banking sector. That's not what our housing policy should be about. So that opened up some space, which I think is important space. I have to say we're still very under-regulated in the rental market. And so... The product that's put onto the rental market is is a poor product. People sort of saying, well, we shouldn't be, you know, so worried about owner or home ownership is what they say. But actually we're worried about it because the rental market does not provide good, secure homes with a decent performance. That's why we're worried. It's not it's not about us all wanting to make heaps of money. What has happened though is that we've got a whole new group, not new now, but a very powerful group who actually owns quite a substantial proportion of the stock, around 27% of the stock, in the private rental market. Private property investors increased their concentration of stock between 1986 and 2018 by 190%. That's quite a lot. And so these people are, are mums and dads who've bought two or three properties or are they you larger know, companies? I, I, my view about investment is, you know, walk like a duck, talk like a duck, quack like a duck, you're probably a duck. The fact that you might also be a mum and dad is actually immaterial to the fact that you're making investment. And that does raise the issue, I think, that we are living in a financialised world around residential property. That is, it's a commodity. It's not for consumption. It's not even for, to fuel a service industry as service landlords. It's really about getting uh, speculative gain or accumulating a set of assets which allow them to use those to borrow other money, a line of credit. That's, an, that's a worldwide thing, and we need to think very carefully about that. So how do you change that particular part of the system, other than what's already been done with the tax deductibility and the fact that we can't really talk about a capital gains tax? Well, I think we can talk about a capital gains tax. <laughs> and I, Prime and Minister's I think quite all, young. <laughs> I think we also have to think about why we don't want to talk about capital gains tax. You know, there is... I, I saw someone being very critical about this idea that, um, you know, it is, you know, it's about we as a, a nation, you know, wanting to protect ourselves. And I think that is true to something. We've got this sort of mental, I, you know, sort of mental framing, which means that capital gains tax means that it takes away our wealth. It doesn't take away our wealth. And, but more importantly, everything that is said to even own a potential owner occupies how that the market is presented to them is all around property it's not all around this is a home for you and your family worry about a b and c don't worry about whether it's got a double garage because the resale value will be rubbish but actually the whole discourse around property is you know houses is all around property resale making a buck on it 
but actually the work we've done shows that most people just want to live in their homes. Thank you very much. But, of course, we now have a group of people who are treating property as a commodity and as a futures, really, uh, and we have to deal with that. So I think that there's two things. One is that we have to take away the incentives to do that. So that may be a whole variety of financial tools and mechanisms to do that. Not being able to deduct interest is one of those. But the other thing is that what happened prior to 1990, in a sense, because people, low and modest income households, could get into housing either directly through savings, through what used to be called building societies and all of those things, and there were a whole lot of things around, you know, getting low cost and uh, loans and and uh, through firstly state advances and then later the Housing Corporation of New Zealand, that provided people with an option. And what we see now is panic buying. So when people seeking home home ownership, owner occupation, they end up competing directly and they're very panicked. And so they overbid, they over leverage. And we have to break that cycle as well. And I think some of the progressive home ownership that's been embedded in the community housing sector, I look at Queenstown Lakes, for instance, I look at the work that um, the Waikato is putting into their um, housing strategy, those sorts of things, as well as the government's progressive home ownership, those things actually give people an, uh, another chance, a way out of the spinning of the, the market. I might say, however, that the worst thing you can do is just pour more money into some people's pockets so that that then inflates the prices up. So have we done enough, therefore, to change the expectations about housing as a a financial commodity as opposed to, you know, a service for humans? I, I don't think we have, and I think that's one of the challenges. And I think the big challenge for the housing system and those that are, you know, responsible to try and work our way through this is that we've got two real, or three problems, really. The first problem is we've got a humanitarian crisis, and it's a very costly one, and we have to deal with that. The trouble is if you keep pouring money into that without sorting out the other you have no money to sort out the other. So, you know, we have to work our way through that. The second problem is that we have to deal with our market and a global system right now. And the third problem is that we have to think about our future. And our future isn't going to be, hopefully, the same as the last 30 years, and it certainly won't be the same as the 100 years before that. So our future is going to be in the context of climate change. It's going to be on how do we, if you like, stimulate our regions to find a good place. So I think, no, we have not done enough yet. So you're suggesting a capital gains tax? I'd, I'd suggest a land tax. Um, land tax is interesting. I, I'm not sure that I would absolutely suggest a capital gains tax, but I certainly wouldn't be averse to it. Uh, and I, but I think there are other ways that you can do stuff. Land tax, I'm not that keen on land tax, but I am keen on getting the value uplift that landholders actually get from either just land banking or through the um, outcomes of us providing infrastructure, for instance. And so I think there's some good ways of doing that. Let's explain that for a, a lot of people who maybe haven't thought through the um, implications of flat 
you know, rural land that is suddenly rezoned as residential land and the value of it changes automatically overnight. And whoever happens to own that land at that time essentially gets an enormous amount of value for free. It just lands on their head from the heavens. And there is a way to not just uh, take some of the incentives away from people holding onto that land until it's rezoned and then they get the manna from heaven, but also you know, helping to pay for the infrastructure that you need to go in through that land to make it actually um, habitable. And this is a tool that uh, our councils can use and one of them has, whereby um, before you rezone the land, you essentially say to everyone, okay, we're going to have a special rate, a value uplift capture rate, so that when the value of your land goes from $10,000 a hectare or whatever it is to a million dollars a hectare, we're going to take 50% or 40% or whatever the number is of that profit, essentially it's a capital gain, and we're going to use that money to build the infrastructure or whatever. Yeah. And actually, you know, the percentages of that value uplift are much, much lower, probably about 10%. So let's not scare the horses (laughs) to 50%. But there's an interesting debate going on about inclusionary zoning. And that's really to say you need to, if you're going to develop land you need to include affordable housing, i.e. housing that's not going to cost someone more than 25 or 30% of their income for median and less and possibly up to 100% of media or 120% of median household income. So, you know, build some um, affordable housing through the inclusionary zoning regulations and it will all be hunky-dory. And I, I know planets who would prefer to throw themselves under a bus than <laughs> allow that <laughs> to happen. But and, and actually, in some ways, they're right because what that ends up doing is it says to a developer, build the sorts of houses you don't usually build. And so either they don't build or they build them badly. Now, when you think of inclusionary zoning, you can use that tool to deal with value uplift. You can do something else, which says, okay, you've got a whole lot of land. We're willing to release it into the zone. And in the place that I live where there's a whole lot of land which is currently under grapes, which is actually already ready for release as residential zoning. It's planned to be residential zoning. Won't happen at the moment because... A, there's no infrastructure, and B, you know, great land looks pretty damn good, actually, even mm-hmm. against, you know, very high house prices. But there is at least one jurisdiction which says, okay, you want to develop that. You don't have to build those houses. You don't even have to put them on your land. You just give us some of your other land because many of these players have large mm. tracts of land all around the place, which they release slowly onto the market to keep the price up. Um, you give us another bit of your land... And we'll take that or pay a fee, doesn't matter, which is a proportion of the value uplift, and we will give it to a dedicated community housing provider whose job is to provide housing solutions for low and modest income people. And they might be rent solutions, they might be lease and build solutions, they might be um, shared ownership solutions. And what that does is it keeps, it's not a tax because a tax would just go into, you know, the consolidated fund, if you like. It's specifically to say, 
you've got your money out of housing and we've provided that either through zoning but actually more often about actually providing infrastructure. We're going to take that and we're going to get affordable housing for our essentially often key workers, the workers that make this economy run and that actually we can't do without. And that's been very, very effective, but it's very unusual in New Zealand. It's not hugely unusual pre-1990, but that's a slightly different story. All right, so where is it done now? So Queenstown Lakes is a really obvious example. They've been very... They've been very clever, actually. That firstly, they did a couple of things. Firstly, they had a housing strategy for the region, and they got away from the idea about targeting. Only those in greatest need should be assisted in any way. Rather, they said, we need a human resource. How do we actually facilitate keeping the people that we need in our, bringing them into our community and keeping them in our community? So they got a housing strategy that recognised that much of their economy was actually a low-wage economy, not a high-wage economy, but a low-wage economy. And they worked that through and developed and supported the development of a community housing provider who then did lots of things, including shared ownership, got their fingers a little bit burnt on the first lot of shared ownership because there was a bit of flipping going on rather than retention, you know, so I learned from that. Um, But also they then went through a situation where they were arguing under the RMA that they could do inclusionary zoning. Some planners will say no. They got that, that went through the court. Suddenly, however, there was another piece of legislation came and they sort of said, oh God, we're going to have arguments about the inclusionary zoning forever. Let's use this piece of legislation, which they did cleverly, uh, and and funnel money into community housing uh, and af- affordable housing. So we often say things, you know, are stopping us doing things when in fact they don't. So why haven't we seen, you know, Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch just use those ratings uplift tools to help pay for the infrastructure, which they say they can't afford because they're up against their debt limits? I know, I know. Well, I mean, interesting, you know, where are debt limits set? I mean, Wellington obviously is a place where they've set their debt limits somewhat lower than we would expect. There's also issues which I think you've identified, Bernard, about the way depreciation works and how that has been used to actually reduce and suppress rate increases, that rate payer anxiety, and that's not just residential rates, that's business rates as well. It's been a great driver of local authorities' views around things. Particularly the move towards ratings on um, capital values rather than land values. Exactly, exactly. So I often hear from councils, not all, but many councils, including, for instance, dealing with council housing for older but for seniors, And they'll say to me, oh, but we're subsidising it. And I'll say, but no, you're not subsidising it. A, you got a pretty good suck of the salve with very low interest rate lending from central government in the 60s and 50s, 60s and 70s, and you've built a huge asset. But actually your income versus your outgoings in terms of running those houses is still in the black. The problem is that for many councils, not all, but some councils, is that they deferred maintenance, they didn't spend on their stock, and now they're looking at a very big bill. And they're going, 
holy moly, what can we do about that? And that feels for them like they're subsidising, but actually they've used that money for other purposes. Uh, So they're not subsidising. They may have an opportunity cost, but everything is an opportunity cost, isn't it? You know, you choose to spend on this as opposed to that. So there's a lot of confusion about the language. And one of the things I sort of feel that we all should do, you know, it's sort of like sex education for kids that you sort of feel as though you should be sitting down and saying, now it's time we talked about subsidies. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the New Zealand political economy all over. Let's, let's, let's talk about, because um, there is this argument, and I sort of, I'm tempted to make it, which is that New Zealanders haven't found the solution to this because at its heart, ratepayers and taxpayers want low rates and low taxes. And to solve this problem, we have to put up both. Well, I think that's right. Housing costs money. All infrastructure costs money. And I I mean, you know, I, I really love this country. I mean, you know, I had a cousin who was overseas and he says, well, why don't you come overseas? And I said... But I can't leave New Zealand. You know, but I look at it at times and I think, actually, we are a country that likes a deal. We like windfall gains. We like passive investment. We like making a bit of money on the side. And unfortunately, that does become very embedded. And when you have this sort of this high price increase around housing, you know, psychologically for those that own as opposed to those that don't, you know, you look at your your valuation, you think, woohoo, just made another hundred thousand. Oh, that makes me feel better. So there is a very deep-seated thing in there. But the reality is that the break on many of our local economies and our national economy is unaffordable housing. We can't keep on paying for people not to be able to get decently housed. So just in summary, uh, Kay, to give me hope, um, list off the things that you think we could we could do to make a difference reasonably quickly. I think we need to make an investment in new builds, but new builds which are actually targeted to low-cost housing, affordable housing, not just housing per se. We need to expand the sector that is committed to providing long-term affordable, what some people call sub-market rents in the rental market. We need to tighten up our regulation even further in the the rental market. We need to make sure that we look at land use planning, but more importantly, tools for value uplift, and funnel that directly into affordable housing build. Excellent. Kay Savile-Smith, from her, um, looks very comfortable, uh, um, I was going to say hut, but it looks like some sort of um, wood-panelled office (laughs) in rural rural Marlborough. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and you've given me some hope. That's wonderful. And um, uh, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change on the spin-off. Thank you very much, Bernard. Lovely to talk to you. We'll be back right after the break, talking to Ronji Taniello, who is an expert in housing out in South Auckland. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. 
Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Well, I'm here out at Manukau at the Salvation Army with Ronji Tanyalu, who is the uh, principal policy advisor with the Salvation Army's policy unit. Thank you very much for inviting me out here to Manukau. Hey, Talofa Bernard, thanks for coming uh, to the capital of the universe, which is uh, <laughs> South Auckland. So good to have you here, bro. Just before we launch into how we're going to solve this problem, can you give us a brief update on what's happening here in South Auckland with... Uh, rents and homelessness and the housing crisis? Yeah, I guess the, 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 the overall picture that we would like to give is, um, look, generally there's been some really good stuff post-COVID. People are flying again back to rugby games, concerts, all that kind of stuff. But what we're seeing uh, with a persistent group of people facing real housing hardship is consistent problems. Hey, we've got uh, families that are struggling in terms of emergency housing, but in the form of private rental, going into arrears, uh, and placed in those houses by MSD. We've got um, more examples of visible homelessness as well in our communities, which is really hard given how cold the winter is. We've got a whole bunch of other issues. So I guess overall, it's doing okay, but in South Auckland, we've still seen some major issues uh, in the housing continuum, but especially the sharper end of the housing continuum. When you say sharper end, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm talking specifically about those in overcrowding, those in homelessness uh, situations, uh, those in what's called transitional housing, which a lot of people might not know about, which is a 12-week stay uh, with government uh, and those in social housing as well. But probably the one that's really popular is emergency housing as well. So those in motels and campsites and so on. I mean, to be honest, talking to one of our social workers, uh, she's been working with a family that's still living in a tent around the corner here. And that's that might sound extreme and sensationalist, but that, that really is, we're seeing a lot more of those cases. And so we've been trying to find a, a, a proper home for them safe, warm, affordable, uh, that, um, and, and that's the kind of examples that we're seeing on the street. So last week I came out and said, gee, I don't have much hope at the moment. Um, what do you think the government, the public could do, should do to try and solve this problem? Look, um, 
as a Christian organization, hope is really central to, to who we are as an organization. At the same time, when you look at the numbers, when you look at the realities, it is pretty dark and bleak out there. But we, we, we try to remain hopeful. When it comes to giving, um, giving some thoughts around that sharper end of the continuum, like home ownership and all the other kind of stuff like that, that's cool. And, 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 and we, we know that there needs to be help there. One of the things that we really need to work on is supporting the role of the community housing provider, uh, especially around uh, Māori housing, papakainga. And so we've really been strongly advocating about what support they need. We need to remove some of the barriers that are, that's involved in them getting involved in greater housing uh, supply. And, and we need to understand their role in the community. I think connected to that, I think all my three points are connected, is around local regeneration and redevelopment projects. I think there's a role there where the community housing providers or CHIPS can play a key role. But when you're talking about what Kanga order and HUD are doing in our local communities, I don't think they really get or understand what's happening. I think we're, we've got 10,000 houses, for example, coming into Mangere uh, that, that, we, that the local community doesn't fully understand or doesn't fully, hasn't fully bought into. What are the home ownership pathways there? How do we get low-income earners in our Mangere community into that kind of housing? So I think we need stronger CHIPS we need stronger and more localised uh, solutions in terms of redevelopment projects. And I think the final thought I'd give Bernard is around increasing supply. I know that's, that's, uh, that's the magic bullet, uh, to be honest, but to be honest, it is really critical. We need to increase supply. We've got families sitting in our transitional housing, which is meant to be a 12 by 12 week stay. And on average, they're staying at about 20 to 25 weeks because we don't have houses to put them in after that. So look, I don't. I, look, I'm not the biggest thinker or the smartest guy. But when you're looking at that sharper end of the continuum, stronger chips, more localized redevelopment, regeneration projects to ensure the locals are involved in that housing um, development there, and increasing supply. And some of that might come in terms of, um, you know, swear words like capital gains taxes and other things like that <laughs> that we don't want to mention. But I have. Um, I think there's other things there about around better wraparound support, around the holistic drivers but I think those are the things I'd really like to put forward um, um, maybe not the most brand new solutions but uh, great ideas or big ideas aren't always about brand new ideas it's about what's worked before how does it work again or what is practical and what can work now the community housing providers there's quite a few of them and they've been quite keen and I've often got ideas What's stopping them from building lots of projects at the moment? I think um, government. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the truth. I think I think um, uh, Kanga Order and HUD, and I might lose my job for this, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> um, I think their, their, their one-size-fits-all model um, and their approach is not inclusive of the community and, and local solutions. So I think the chips are sitting there. They've got the capacity. They know how to work with these communities. They've got the know-how. They've got the wraparound support, the connections to others in the communities. And I don't think HUD or Kanga Order is leveraging or connecting well with them. Our government is about to release a general housing policy statement through HUD. And one of the things that I've found a real struggle there is that the role of the chip has been undermined. 
And I, and I don't think that's good enough. And again, we've pushed back on, on we need strong chips. If you look at the examples of Australia, of the UK, where chips and local government are involved in housing provision, that stuff is critical and that stuff can help address this social housing register that's at 22,000 plus applicants or the homelessness we see on the streets. So look, we're big, it's a bit biased because the Salvation Army is a chip, but again, we are big supporters of chips in terms of their role in this game um, and so, it's so not what, been done well. Mm, so the government, I, I agree, uh, seem to be more focused on Kainga Order than they do on um, helping the chips. How could the government help the chips? Could they uh, hand over land? Could they provide lumps of capital? Um, what, what's what's yeah, needed? I think all of the above, Bernard. I think it's about removing barriers. And so whatever the barrier might be for that chip to engage in, in, in housing provision at scale, I think that's a key at scale to deal with some of the issues. Part of our advocacy is about greater capital expenditure, land deals, infrastructure deals. What does it mean to build the capacity of a chip? Um, one of my worries is that people chase the dollar. And so you've got a lot of people interested in becoming a chip, but we want to make sure that those organisations are well supported and legit, to be honest, to make sure that they're dealing with quite complex people and whānau and clients that are coming through. So you need a well-resourced, well-supported chip sector, but it isn't just about throwing money at it, it's also about building the capacity within the sector as well. And when you look at the wraparound services that are needed and the particular situations that many people who are homeless are, are in, what are the other things that could or should be done, particularly around how MSD uh, operates with people who are struggling at the moment? One of the things that the, the peripheral issues that's really important is around financial hardship and debt. That's massively connected to what we work with in the Salvation Army when we come to housing issues. We see 120,000 uh, people come through our doors every year. Over half of them have a problem debt issue and primarily to a, a, a predatory lender or to government. So when you're dealing with some of the debt issues, you can help prepare um, and, and strengthen the position of that person to go into the housing solution that we hopefully have come up with them. So I think all of those things play against each other or with each other. What's stopping the government from just wiping the debt? Look, that's something that we've asked for as well many times in terms of debt amnesties and debt forgiveness. They have done that in the past. There's no standing policy as such. And, um, and, and we're doing a current piece of work around debt to government at the moment. How big an issue is it? Look, it's it's massive. Um, a couple of clients that I've seen, their, their records um, had six-figure debts to government. And these are people on benefits. They'll never be able to pay that money back. So it really is a, it's really just the admin cost just to keep that debt going. That's, it's a low return on investment there. So I think when it comes to uh, a debt forgiveness, debt amnesties or in-kind support or other forms, we've got to be creative about what it means to try and get rid of that debt to ensure that people have a standing or some sort of firm position to build on. And that's connected to the housing stuff. It absolutely is connected because all of these issues are hugely connected to the housing stress that people are facing. Tell me how many of the attachment orders are coming from state 
organisations. So MSD and, you know, um, justice, that sort of thing. So attachment orders are specifically for civil court debt repayment. So it's companies that have taken out a district court hearing, private companies taken out a district court hearing to get their money back from person. So that it doesn't even cover uh, 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 wins debt or, or debt to government issues. That debt to government is actually a separate issue, which we think is much bigger. When you look at the number of of, of advances or rears or or overpayments, all these kinds of things. So. We don't have all the data at the moment to tell you how big that picture is, but if you're looking at 30,000 attachment orders and 85% of them going on beneficiaries, it's almost like blood out of a stone. You're trying to get blood out of a stone and you're not actually setting people up to thrive or have even a stable position to move into housing. These are people who are homeless, who are in motels for emergency housing, who are trying to deal with the debt on top of feeding their families and on top of whatever else is going on. So it's really hard to answer all the questions around housing when it's so interconnected with everything else. But I personally think, and we've done a lot of work around the connection between financial hardship and housing. And if you get some of those those buttons pushed or levers pushed or whatever the analogy is, then I think you're starting to get some people actually move along that continuum into thriving and, and at least being safe, warm, affordable. So just to summarise here, we're saying the government should help the chips more with potentially land or capital. Uh, MSD um, and justice should look at trying to remove some of these um, these debts and these sanctions, which are giving people stress and financial hardship. It means that, that just paying the rent, let alone saving to buy a house, is really, really hard. And, um, and then, of course... Um, uh, working with all the community groups to try and remove that housing problem, which it seems to me is the base of everything. If you can't afford to live in a house, if you're living in a motel or a tent mm. and um, you've got no hope of having a stable place, even if it's a rented stable place or a stable place that, that you can call your own, the successive problems and pain and difficulties just keep building and building and building and costing and costing, let alone the pain and hardship of, of people. Uh, so if you were in government, you could achieve a lot more by forgiving debts, using your capital, which is very cheap, to actually help those people who are most in need and in the long run, reduce your costs and of course, maximise the well-being and the output of all yeah. of these families. And, and I guess, and I think you summarised it well, but I guess the thing that I, I get tired of is that, look, government plays a, a critical role in this, and it's probably the biggest role, but I think we devalue and, and or undervalue the role of our local communities. I think there's local solutions that are out there that we need to support, government needs to support, whether it's a chip or another form of, of, of housing development or support that's out there that's not government funded. I just think we need to realise that there's local solutions that are, that, are, that are helpful as well. And I think in the scheme of things, you start pulling some of these levers and, and getting some wins there, I think you're going to get to the point where we remain hopeful. Because if we're in, we're in the wrong business, if we're not hopeful in, in, in terms of getting transformative change for our people in Farno. So that's our view. Ronji Tanialu uh, from the uh, Salvation Army, the Principal Policy Advisor. Thank you very much. Cool. Thanks for having me. God bless you.
So there we have it. A special thanks to Ronji Tanyelu, who invited me into his office next to the biggest food bank in the country and a drug rehab facility um, right at the bleeding edge, really, of our housing crisis. And thank you so much to Kay Savile-Smith, who's been through the wars of the housing market and housing advice for 30 years and has some hope, which is great. The key thing is we need to somehow capture some of that value from rising land prices, change expectations about housing as a commodity and a financial instrument. And we need to help those at the coalface who are doing the job of providing housing for people in all sorts of trouble. So there we go, a few glimmers of hope on the housing front. And a big idea from me, let's hope that gives someone some hope. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was When the Facts Change, a podcast on the Spinoff Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kia Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.